Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Robert Young Pelton back with us has become the inspiration and role model for a new generation of intellectual adventurers. He is an author, a couple of his books, The Adventurist, License to Kill, The World's Most Dangerous Places, and Come Back Alive. He's a filmmaker, photographer, adventurer, explorer, expert, philosopher. My gosh, what a list. And Robert has trained Navy SEALs in survival, participated in Secret Special Forces training, and here he is back on Coast to Coast. We missed you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good, George. How are you doing? Great. What's new with you? Um, I'm writing books. I'm, I'm still writing my book about Joseph Coney and setting up the interview. I'm celebrating 10 years of my knife company, DPX Gear, and uh, outfitting my favorite um, ODA, my Special Forces ODA, and, which is how I got into the knife business, to give them decent tools for their work. And uh, I'm just enjoying life. Good for you. Good for you. Well, you're still our world explorer. When anything happens around this planet, we want you to jump on it. And there's so much going on these days right now. Do you get the feeling, Robert, that things are under control or out of control worldwide? Well, we had uh, eight years under President Obama in which we took sort of conciliatory steps towards some of the uh, players in the Middle East. So... Uh, you know, we did deals with Iran to sort of tone things down. And we had Arab Spring, and then we had a, a series of semi-democratic um, leaderships in the Middle East, the Mediterranean area. So we, we had a bunch of crises, but they didn't pop or explode. And uh, when President Trump uh, came into office, we then reversed course. Now, in any any political situation, when you reverse course, there's sort of a period of nothing happening and all of a sudden things start to speed up and and this summer what we're going to see is the net effect of reversing our foreign policy and we're already seeing military offenses in places like libya and uh, yemen and other countries and also afghanistan so uh, this summer is going to be very busy with violence i I, th- I think so too and we of course have seen so much of it over the last couple of months it doesn't seem to go away i wanted to ask you a question about isis because the president did say that uh, ISIS uh, had been defeated. Uh, but today, a video pops up of a guy that everybody thought was dead, uh, Baghdadi, who heads up ISIS. I mean, where is this guy? Well, okay, so ISIS, ISIS is metastasizing. And you know what that means, that when you have a medical condition and you think you have it under control and you, you know, apply some kind of medication or chemotherapy, it's, it accidentally spreads the disease. It gets worse. Body. So what most people don't realize is that ever since Baghdadi made that famous speech in the 800-year-old mosque in Mosul, there have been 143 attacks in over 30 countries. And, and what that means is we've been focused on Syria because that was sort of a geographical battle to get rid of ISIS, but we haven't been paying attention to the spread or the franchising of ISIS from everywhere to the Philippines to sort of uh, call them copycat or even inspired attacks in places like France and then even America. Who's financing these people, Robert? Where are they getting their weapons? So it started in Iraq. Remember we had a huge reconstruction budget? Yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine was doing a secret mission over there, and they were dropping bombs on banks, and uh, I said, oh, he's getting rid of the ISIS money. He said, no, it's reconstruction money. And, and the reality is that we pumped billions of dollars into Iraq, which was then shaved off and used by ISIS 
or in people in the Anbar province to fund ISIS. Once ISIS gets its tentacles into a town or a region, they begin taxation. So everybody has to pay a certain percentage of taxes from their businesses, their income. It's like a mob shakedown, huh? Exactly. Then they're self-funding. So when I was in Libya watching our forces kill ISIS, each business had a, a logo spray-painted on it to show that it was paying taxes to ISIS. And, of course, if they didn't, they dragged them out and chopped their heads off or did something terrible to them. So it's a self-funding insurgency group, and it can go anywhere there's any kind of infection, any small uh, dispute that one uh, group might have with another. They literally send trainers, propagandists, uh, financiers, and trainers to within sort of 90 days have them up and running as ISIS. And they're up and running and they're doing it. Uh, they're all over the place, aren't they? Well, the goal now is not so much to have real estate. So the caliphate was supposed to be, you know, a huge spread of, of geographical control. Uh, they know that's not going to work. So what they're doing now is they're essentially saying, for example, in Sri Lanka, you know, who the heck would predict uh, ISIS attack in Sri Lanka? So they provide the expertise, they provide the explosives training, and then when they say you're linked to ISIS, you get global uh, publicity for this violent event. So it's it's a it's a it's the Colonel Saunders of terrorism. You know, it has much more impact now anywhere in the world. Do you think the burning of uh, Notre Dame, the cathedral, had anything to do with terrorism, or do you think it was indeed restoration problems that happened? Well, so. I believe that they've done a study and they said it was caused by a fire. But before that, there had been multiple attacks on churches, and there had actually been That's right. an ISIS-inspired plot uh, to light a fire. Now, that tells you all you need to know about terrorism, because the symbolism of terrorism is more frightening than the actual act of terrorism. So all ISIS would have to do is claim that event, and then you would have to spend millions of dollars in publicity trying to uh, compete with that. And this is the danger of asymmetrical warfare. I'm going to throw some uh, countries your way, Robert, and uh, tell us your views on how we're handling things with them. Let's start, of course, with, uh, with Russia. Um, the, uh, you know, the attack on the president and the uh, talk of Russian collusion apparently hasn't filtered out at all, and it, it, filled, it petered away, actually. And in this particular case, though, what's going on with Russia? What did they? What did they? What well, do you think they actually did? Well, Russia is a very tiny country, and and, and uh, it has much more impact than than the economics or military has. What really happened was that during the lead up to the transition of power between President Obama and President Trump, a number of people were performing diplomacy, essentially trying to unwind Obama's sanctions on Putin, and and Putin supports oligarchs, you know, the, the wealthy uh, Russians, yeah. who, who also support him. And this is a very comfortable relationship for a guy that's been running that country since uh, 1999. And so the idea was that let's be friendly with Russia and let's try to get them away from supporting Iran. And this is an agenda that they have. So the collusion was, was almost farcical. You know, it was like uh, dancing at the high school prom where people were putting out feelers and people were trying to chase those down. But there never was any Clinton dirt and there never was any real collusion. But the Mueller report was triggered by a sense of espionage, that there must be some Rus Russian espionage going on. And there was some meat or some uh, fire where there was smoke. Now, it didn't help that President Trump kept... <laughs> 
kept bromancing with uh, Vladimir Putin and asking him to hack, uh, look for emails and things like that. But at the end of the day, it was an investigation. Uh, Mueller did a good job. He found many other things. He has 14 other cases that have to be resolved. But Trump feels vindicated. But it should be a warning to us that Russia is actively involved in influencing elections. What about our relationship with Iran? Why can't we get a better relationship with them? Are they that bad? No, but, you know, this starts in 1979. You know, two, two things started in 1979, which was the, the Soviets invading Afghanistan when we began to create, essentially, the jihadis That's right. by funding extremists. And also when you had the revolution in Iran in which they threw out the man that we had installed as Shah. So we have a long history of antagonism with the current mullahs because of, obviously, the embassy kidnapping and a history of supporting uh, terrorist groups and violent acts against the U.S. It's changed dramatically in the last few years because if you look at a map and you look at where Saudi Arabia is, oil is, it's right on the coast across Moran. And the biggest threat to Saudi Arabia would be the complete elimination of their dictatorship by Iran by taking over their oil. So we have a thing called neocons, you know, and these are people that believe in the sort of troika of of Israel, Arab nations, and sort of a, a fundamental union between Christians and, and Jews and Muslims. And we have created this new axis of, um, I don't know what, what to call it, but we are working actively with Saudi Arabia and the UAE to support Israel's goals, which is essentially to push back on Iran, because that's Israel's biggest fear. Now, has has Iran declared war on us? Have we come to blows with Iran? Yes, we've, we've pushed our luck, and they've pushed their luck, and we're literally bookending them in Iraq and Afghanistan, so they feel threatened. And that is going to be a flashpoint. So ever since yeah, sure is. 2016, they have been working with a number of groups to come up with some kind of false flag operation, which ideally would be in Lebanon or Syria. It would be started by somebody atta- or Iranians attacking some Western element, and then Israel would begin, and then we would chime in, and then that, that's our war. Most Iranians, I am told, love the Western way of living. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, because that's where the culture comes from, but don't forget they're at the crossroads, right? I mean, they're literally in the middle of Asia and the West, and, and they are more than able to appreciate not only their own culture, but obviously, you know, the things that come from Asia and the things that come from America. Right now, they live in a repressive, somewhat restricted environment because we keep turning the screws on them, and the mullahs want to have sort of this throwback uh, environment in which, yes, you can be educated, and yes, you can get married, but you can't sort of be your own person. So anybody that travels to Iran will tell you that they had a great time and the people are wonderful and isn't it sad that they, you know, they're so poor and that they're so repressed? Uh, if the mullahs disappear, Iran would just be a modern Middle Eastern nation. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.